So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll pick up where we were before. While you're turning there, let me remind you that Paul writes his last letter to the church entitled to the Ephesians. This letter is, uh, the oldest manuscripts don't say that it was to the Ephesians. We have a, an, an old manuscript that, is, that has, um, if you will, handwritten in the, the space that's left to Ephesus. But this was a letter that was a, a, apparently intended to be passed around between a number of churches, the churches of Asia. By the way, the churches of Asia are the same seven churches that uh, uh, Jesus spoke to in the book of Revelation uh, with the uh, addition of two other churches, one of them being the Colossian church. So this is a, a letter to uh, a number of churches. It's a letter to the, the body of Christ as a whole, to be honest with you. And, uh, and because it is written in such a way, Paul's not trying to address any specific problem. Now, by that I mean, you remember when he wrote to the Corinthians, there was a guy that was living with his stepmother in open sin, and, and he was dealing with that issue. When he writes to the Colossians, there's a, a, a heretical doctrine where people are worshiping uh, angels and evil spirits and so forth. But the letter to the Ephesians is different in, in the respect that he's kind of backing up and taking a big picture view of what the church should be in the earth. And, uh, and as such, he, uh, he speaks in more general terms than he does in many of the other letters. And he gives uh, a little bit more of information for us and to us about who God expects us to be in the earth. And so he ends chapter 4 by saying, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. And then starts in chapter 5. Of course, he didn't write in chapter and verses. So the first verse of chapter 5 refers back to the, uh, the act or the operation of forgiveness in your life. He says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. You can't be a follower of God unless you're a forgiver. This word follower literally means imitator. It's the, it's the Greek word that we get our English word mimic from. He's talking about being imitator of God. Being an imitator of God comes down to one main thing, and that is God forgives, so you're going to have to too. So he says, be ye therefore followers of God or imitators of God, literally, as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. There's 40 times in the Pentateuch, the first five books of uh, the Bible, where the priests are instructed to take incense into the temple to offer a sweet-smelling sacrifice or a sweet-smelling savor unto God. It literally means that when these things are done, God is satisfied. So what the Bible is saying is if you walk in love and walk in forgiveness, your life will be satisfying to God. It says of Jesus that when he offered himself as a sacrifice for all of mankind's sins, that God was satisfied. John says it this way when he writes to the church. He says Jesus was a propitiation for our sins. One of the meanings of the word propitiation is satisfaction. God was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. Well, in the same way, he'll be satisfied with your life if you're a forgiver and you walk in love. And walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, Paul is going to begin to talk about things that, uh, that the church should avoid. He's uh, talked in the previous chapter about putting off the old man. 
and uh, literally putting away the old man. He says, uh, writing to, in other letters to the church, that we've already put off the old man, the old nature, if we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives. But there's, there's a difference in putting it off by becoming a, a Christian, by getting saved, as we sometimes say, and putting it away by refusing to live according to it any longer. So he's already spoken about these things. And now he's going to make mention of, um, of the, the, the main area that he's going to warn the church not to be like the world, and it's the area of sex. Now, you know as well as I do, there's a lot of other sins besides sexual sins. Why doesn't he talk about the other sins? Well, he's writing to a people, to a time, to a city or cities that are so highly sexualized that it is what their cities are known for. When we went on this um, trip to... um, the Journeys of Paul trip that we took a month or two ago, we had an opportunity to go to Ephesus, the ruins of Ephesus. And there's, uh, I had read some things about it, but I was amazed to see it for myself and see how much uh, uh, was there and was identifiable and so forth. And the, the temples that are still there in the city or the ruins of the temples, I should say, they're still there in the city, not just to, the, to Artemis or Diana. Uh, one's a Greek term, the other's a Roman term are just mind-boggling. I mean, they're one right after another, side-by-side, door-to-door, if you will, next door to one another, up and down the streets. And each one, or nearly each one, had as a part of their temple worship sexual perversion. You either had to, to go in and have sex with the prostitutes, the temple prostitutes, or you went in with someone, you took someone in with you and had sex in front of the idols that, that were there. Everything was just so highly sexualized, it, uh, it dominated the culture. Well, that's who Paul's writing to. And so he says, he instructs us to be imitators of God, to satisfy God with our lives by forgiving and walking in love. But here's his warning. Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness Let it not be once named among you as becoming saints. Now, these three words, fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness, all have a sexual connotation. Now, there's no point in us trying to divide between what one word means and another word means, but they simply come down to this. It comes down to a life being dominated by sexual activity or sexual thoughts, which leads you to the place where you, where in our present society is called sexual addiction, where it's a, it's a, it's a constant effort. It's a constant work to have more and more and more sex. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul, with all the things that he could identify as sins, it's interesting to me that the Holy Ghost, knowing what Paul probably didn't know, Paul had no way to know that this would be his last letter to the church. He had no way to know that this would be the instruction that God would save for us for, for posterity throughout the church age. I, I don't think Paul had a had a complete understanding of everything that we can now look back and see has transpired. I could be wrong on that, but it just would, uh, would seem out of character to me for God to show him everything about the future. God doesn't show you everything about your future, does he? But there are times where we get to places in our lives where we look back and we, we see that God was working on things that we didn't know at the time, and it's probably to our benefit that we didn't know it at the time. I think it was the same way with Paul. Now, again, I could be wrong on that. Uh, if so, you need to mark that down. 
be one of the first things I was wrong about, but nevertheless. But regardless of all the things that the Holy Ghost could have prompted Paul to talk about as far as sins and, and evidence of a sinful life, a life that's not satisfying to God, he picked sexual sins as being the, at the forefront. It's almost like Paul knew what, what our society was going to turn into. It's almost like he knew that the devil's main work was through the lust of the flesh that opens the door to every other type of sin. So he talks about these things as being things that the church should avoid. Now, folks, you need to understand something. If it's not possible for a Christian to be a fornicator or to be an unclean person or to be covetous, sexually covetous, he wouldn't have told the church to avoid these things. He's saying that the church should not be named among the, among the common practices that are taking place in the cities to which these letters go. Well, if that was true then, wouldn't it be true now? So he says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becoming saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather the giving of thanks. These three things... Foolish talking, jesting, and uh, filthiness are all sexually connected too. He's talking about speech, a manner of speech that is sexually charged as being something that's inappropriate for the church to operate in. In other words, the church shouldn't talk like the world. Now, some people want to take this apart and say, well, does that mean we shouldn't make jokes? Well, not sexual jokes. See, the context that Paul is talking about is the, the paramount thing that the Holy Ghost brings to the, to the front as far as his warning is concerned, and that is sexuality. Now, folks, there's nothing wrong with sexuality. There's nothing wrong with sex. God made us sexual beings. It's foolish for us to try to deny that or act like that, the, that that's not the truth. But there is a boundary for sexual activity that God has established, and that's marriage. I don't know why the... the um, well, in my opinion, let me give you my opinion on something. I think the church has done a disservice to the world as far as sex is concerned. Because we don't talk about it like we should. We avoid the subject. So the kids are growing up in the churches thinking that God's against sex and he's the one that created it. If he was against it, he wouldn't have made it. And so we, we leave the wrong impression because we're too embarrassed to talk about things. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about sex this morning. Everybody can take a breath, including me. That'd be one of my favorite topics to discuss in church, you know. But I think the church has done a disservice to the body of Christ. The ministers, the ministry has done a disservice to the body of Christ because we've left the wrong idea about things. The reality is very simply this. The devil will always take something that's good and try to push you to extreme to bring you into error. That's what he's done with sex. And the church hasn't been much of a help. So when the Bible is talking about these things, he's all connected. He connects all of these acts, thoughts, and words to sexuality. He's saying the church should have a handle on sexuality that the world does not understand. The church should have a better understanding. The body of Christ should have a better understanding of sex in its proper context and the appropriate nature of sex and the inappropriate nature of uh, sex more than anybody else on the face of the earth. Unfortunately, we don't. 
For this you know, verse 5, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, um, Paul refers to the same three things he referred to before, fornication, unclean, and covetousness. Now he adds one other, and he says, anybody that's uh, operating in this highly sexualized spirit of the world activity is, uh, is in idolatry. Now, we think when we look at the ancient world and we see them worshiping statues and stuff like that, we think, well, you know, they were just pagans. They were just backwards people. And, and we would never worship idols like that in our present day because we're so much more highly educated and, and uh, advanced and sophisticated and, and so forth. And the reality is sex in our culture has created uh, idolaters just like it did in theirs, according to the Holy Ghost. So he says... This you know, these, uh, these words, these introductory words literally mean be well assured. Be well assured that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, folks, if he's just talking about unsaved, or he is talking about the unsaved, Paul says this in a way, let me say it this way. Paul says this in a way where he can mean several things. Where he says that people operating in this uh, uh, form of the world's attitude of sexuality has no part in the kingdom of Christ. He's talking about the unsaved. But he doesn't say just the kingdom of Christ. He says the kingdom of Christ and of God. So he's got to be talking about something more than the unsaved. So what is he saying? Is he saying that if you operate according to the world, as a, if you operate as a Christian, according to the world's uh, way of doing things as far as sex is concerned, is he saying you lose your salvation? Well, he can't be saying that. That's not what causes somebody to lose their salvation. Denying Jesus is the only thing that will cause somebody to lose their salvation. Now, you can get to the place where you're so consumed with any sin to where you might come to the place where you deny Christ. But he can't be referring to that. He wouldn't have left out the important pieces of that progression to just refer to this. So when he says no whoremonger nor fornicator, or what does he say? Whoremonger, unclean person, or covetous man who is an adulterer has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. There's only two things that the kingdom of God can mean. One is the blessings we have as believers here on the earth. And the other is the millennial reign of Jesus. Now, you decide for yourself what he means. Because he can mean either or both. He can be saying very simply, you can forfeit your blessings here on the earth, the things that Jesus died for you to have here on the earth. Not your eternal salvation, but the blessings that Jesus died for you to have here on the earth through sexual impurity or immorality. But he can also be saying that you can lose your place in the millennial reign of Jesus. Which the Bible says when Jesus comes back. For that millennial reign will rule and reign with him. You can lose any place of ruling and reigning with him. Through sexual immorality and perversion here on the earth too. It's pretty serious stuff. So he says be well, well assured. Know this. No whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater. Has he any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God? 
And then he makes a statement that we need to pay particular attention to in verse 6. He says, let no man deceive you with vain words. Let no man deceive you with vain words. In other words, he's saying, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Now, there's a lot of the church world trying to tell us otherwise about certain areas of sexuality. This is the issue with gay marriage in our present society where the church is concerned. It's not a matter of being tolerant. It's not a matter of loving people. You can be tolerant and love people and still recognize that sin is sin. It's not being against the gays in any way whatsoever or trying to turn them out or judge them or or anything else. seems like the watchword of this present society, this present day, is you're judging me. Well, it's not our job to judge people, but it is our job to judge things. The Bible says, he that spiritual judges all things. Well, how do we judge all things? By the word. In other words, what God says something is, is what it is. If God says homosexuality is a sin, then it's a sin. Now, what better way, knowing what we've just read, that Paul wrote to the Ephesians in these few verses about sexual perversion and immorality, what better way would the devil have to get into the church and negate the truth that the Holy Ghost has given to us through the word than by trying to get us to to swallow or take hold of a loving attitude toward what the Bible clearly says is sexual sin and perversion, which is exactly what's taking place in the church today. you got some Christian leaders, well-known Christian leaders, people that have been solid on the word in years past, talking about evolving on the issue. I'm not sure what that means because God doesn't change and the word doesn't change. So I don't know how you evolve on an issue when the Bible still says what it says. Nevertheless, you've got some people trying to talk us into an unscriptural attitude and action, position, stand on sexual issues in our world today. They're trying to deceive us through empty words. God calls them empty words. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things, please notice, because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. What's Paul saying? He's saying, don't put yourself in a position where the wrath of God will come on you too. Now, he's not talking about the wrath of God in the tribulation. He's not talking about the wrath of God as far as losing your salvation and going to hell. He's talking about the wrath of God in the sense that you're not satisfying or your life is no longer pleasing to God, like he referred to in verses 1 and 2. See, remember this whole thing started with, be imitators of God through forgiving one another and walk in love as Christ loved you because a walking in love kind of life Is what satisfies God like a sweet-smelling sacrifice. But avoid these sexual sins. It's all connected. So he said, let no man deceive you with vain or empty words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them, which means you can. If it was impossible for a Christian to be a partaker of these sins, the way of the world in this area... He wouldn't have told us not to. But the fact that he says, be ye not partakers together with them, says that a Christian can act just like the unsaved in the area of sex, just like any other area. 
Are you out there? Be ye not therefore partakers with them, for you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Colossians 1.13 says, We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness and trans- uh, we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Here Paul uses the same analogy. He says that you were once darkness. Now he's talking about spiritually dead. He, con- he connects or joins together the ideas, the concepts of spiritual death and darkness. You were once darkness. He didn't say you were once in the darkness. He said you were once the darkness itself. But when you made Jesus the Lord of your life, your whole nature changed. That nature of darkness was changed to light. So walk like the children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit, verse 9, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. This word spirit is the same word light. He's talking about the fruit of the light. He's saying what the light or walking in the light will produce is righteousness and truth. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Proving... The word proving means to reveal, to reveal what is acceptable under the Lord. He's still talking about your life being satisfying to God. Proving what is acceptable under the Lord and have no fellowship with unfruitful, with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. You remember Galatians chapter five, Paul talks about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. He does this over and over and over again. He does not call it the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh. He does not call it the works of the spirit compared to the works of the flesh. He calls it the fruit of the spirit compared to the works of the flesh. In other words, what he's saying is death doesn't produce something that can be called fruit. There are dead works and works of death. But it's not something that could be compared with fruit because fruit is something that results from life so he says the fruit of life is in all goodness and righteousness and truth proving what is acceptable revealing what is acceptable unto the lord and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather reprove them this word reprove means to expose to expose for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret One thing I know for sure is Paul had no idea that there would be an internet. Because the things that used to be done in shame and in secret are now open and on pay-per-view. But all things that are reproved, exposed, are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. I want you to hold your finger here. We're going to come back to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. But look with me over to John chapter 3 for a minute. I want you to see something Jesus said. I'm going to back up and read the verse of scripture that everybody knows. John 3:16. And then I'll read down through so you can see the context of what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now notice verse 20. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. This word is the same word that Paul uses over in Ephesians 5. Exposed. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Let me read to you again in verse 13 of Ephesians 5. But all things that are reproved, exposed, literally, are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. In other words, he's saying the light is the only thing that can expose darkness. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's only one thing that makes darkness go away, and that's light. Now, you need to realize what he's talking about here, folks. He's saying that you were once darkness, but now you are the light. Now you are light. The life of God that's made you a new creature, that's recreated you in the image of God, brought the Spirit of God, the presence of God within you to dwell within you forever, that made you the light. Now, remember that, uh, that Jesus said about the Holy Ghost. He said, when he has come, when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall be witnesses. I think a lot of times we read that, you shall go witnessing. He didn't say the presence of the Holy Ghost upon us, living within us and dwelling upon us, would enable us to go witnessing. He said it would make us witnesses. You shall be witnesses. In other words, it's your life lived as a sweet-smelling savor unto God by walking in love and walking in forgiveness that exposes the darkness of the world. Which is why the world hates the church. Nobody wants to be judged. People that are operating in sin, just like Jesus said, he that doeth evil hates the light. People that are operating in sin because they want to operate in sin, not because they're trapped and want a way out, but because they want to operate in sin, don't want anything that exposes what they're doing as sin. So what do they do? They try to justify what they're doing as okay. If God is a loving God, then he's okay with this. God is a loving God. He's not okay with that, and that's why he sent Jesus. But what do you do when there's a people who live in such a way that their lives, the light of God on the inside of them, their lives in their very essence, in their very operation, expose the works of the evil as evil? You got, sooner or later, you've got to get away from those folks or get rid of them. What's happening now when people, not just the church, but when people are stepping up and saying, Islam is not a religion of peace, you've got to shut those people up. Now, it doesn't matter if they're right, but you've got to shut them up. Because if the purpose of the administration, if the purpose of the people in charge, if the purpose of the spirit of this world, which is guiding the governments and so forth, if the purpose is to open the door so that the devil can have his way in the earth and in, in our lives, 
If that's what's really going on, then you've got to stop anybody saying, here's what's going on. And don't think for a minute it's going to get any better. I don't care if they shut down the border. I don't care if they change the visa program. I don't care if they stop immigration whatsoever. We're on a track that cannot be reversed, folks. And what exposes sin? What exposes that which is wrong? What exposes the darkness? Light. So what does the devil want to do? He wants to get you to cover your light with sin. Remember how Jesus said, let your light shine, put it on a candlestick, not under a bushel. The devil's trying to get you to cover your, your light, the light of God in you and, and upon you with sinful actions. The Old Testament story tells, uh, Old Testament tells a story of Gideon who was instructed by God to put lamps under, uh, in jars and carry them. And at the appropriate time, they shouted and broke the jars so that everybody could see the light. When the enemy saw the light, they realized we're done for because the light is surrounding us. Well, that's what we need to do as a church. We need to smash the jars that we're living in, the jars of the flesh. We need to take the bushels off of the light and live and walk as children of the light so that the world sees a difference in us. And, folks, i got to tell you, I believe that there's a segment of the church at least, a remnant, whatever you want to call it, Maybe not the whole of the church. Well, certainly not the whole of the church. But there's a remnant of people that are going to walk in the light in the last days. And the more we walk in the light, the more we're going to see the power of God in operation. The more we see the power of God in operation, the more the devil's going to raise his head up. But the more people are going to be drawn to the light and the power of God. That's what I believe. So Paul continues. He says, all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, awake, this is uh, uh, Isaiah 60, verse 1, I believe it is. Wherefore he saith, awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead. Arise from the dead literally means from among the dead. Arise from among the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now, if he's talking about the church again, what does he mean? Does he mean that the church is spiritually dead? No, he's saying the church is asleep. Imagine this. Imagine there was a great battle and there was a huge battlefield and there are many, many dead people laying around on the battlefield. But among the dead people, among the bodies that are laying around that are dead, there are those who are so exhausted from the fight they just stopped where they were and laid down on the ground and they're asleep. Well, if we're looking from the outside, we can't tell the difference between people that are dead and people that are asleep. That's the picture Paul was painting. He's saying it's time to wake up. You're laying among dead people. You're living among dead people. But it's time to wake up and show the difference between you and them. Show the difference between you and them. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. What is he saying? He's saying it's a foolish thing to be asleep in the world. The word circumspect means to walk with accuracy. With accuracy. Accuracy according to what? According to the word. Walk in the accuracy of the word, the truth of the word, in other words. 
See then that you walk circumspectly, accurately, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now, for me, this verse ties everything together. When I understood, when I came to understand what he's talking about, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Paul is talking about the days that he's living in. He's not writing this for us. He's writing this to people that are living in his day. Paul writes this about 62 AD. He's in jail, in in prison in Rome, but it's house arrest. According to the last couple of verses of the book of Acts, it tells us that when Paul got to Rome, there wasn't the opposition there against him stirred up by the Jews that he was expecting there to be. And so it was a a house arrest situation. Nobody forbid anybody to come to him and he kind of had free reign and free rule of of a, a rented house while he was there in Rome. Now, historical documents indicate, we don't know this for sure, but they indicate to us that Paul was let go uh, about 62 A.D. from Rome. But then two years later, 64 A.D., there's a new um, uh, situation taking place. Nero is the, is the emperor. He was in 62 as well. But Nero has now gone crazy, basically. And he's operating in such a way that he wants new... Um, he wants a new palace. He wants new buildings in, in Rome that he can name to himself rather than some of the stuff that's there. And so he sets a fire to the, to the city of Rome, burns it to the ground. Well, the people suspect that it was him. And so they're starting to revolt. And so then he, through some of his um, uh, underlings and, and so forth, starts spreading the rumors. It wasn't Nero. It was the church. It was the Christians. And so the Christians are blamed for the burning of Rome in 64 A.D., now, this is two years prior to the point in time where Paul is. Now, Paul is already in jail in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. He's been involved in persecuting the church before he got saved. He's seen in Acts chapter 12, uh, James beheaded. They were going to behead Peter, but the angel led him out of prison. You remember that story. He's seen in just about everywhere that he's gone throughout the Roman Empire. The Jews are stirring up trouble against him, creating riots in cities. And these riots are not going unnoticed by the Roman government. So in all these places, Ephesus being one of them, where there was a great riot, all these cities, where there was great upheaval, it all comes back to the church. And so these things are starting to pile up, stack up one after the other against the church, creating a situation where people now are speaking against the church and saying the church is involved in all kinds of stuff that they never were involved in. The church is being blamed for all kinds of things that aren't true. Paul sees these things coming. He knows that his time is short. He was killed in about 64 AD, 64, maybe early 65. So he's just a couple of years away from going off the scene. Now he's known that things were going to get bad before he even started on his journey to Rome, before he was imprisoned and started on his journey to Rome. Because remember, he told the Ephesians, uh, the Ephesian elders that he wouldn't see them anymore. He knew his time was coming to a close. Paul has um, a consciousness about him in everything that he does and everything that he writes. He has a consciousness of the time that he's living in. We should too. Another thing that's going to happen... Two years after Paul writes this, Rome burns and and he's beheaded because of it. He and Peter are both martyred 
because of the, the, the lie that Nero, the emperor, told about the church and the Christians. Two years after that, in 66 AD, James is beheaded or beaten to death. He's not beheaded, but he's beaten to death in Jerusalem. One of the things that uh, there are discrepancies in the the story of how that came about. But one thing that is known is that it took place right between the appointment of two or right before the appointment of a new Roman governor to Judea. What I mean by that is the last guy died and before the next guy could be installed in office, the Jews beat James, the pastor of the church, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, it was interesting because James was, was respected. James was the most Jewish of all of the church leaders. He was highly respected, very much held in honor and, and great esteem because of the life that he lived according to the law of Moses. Uh, held in high esteem, I didn't finish my statement, held in high esteem by the Jews because he lived his life according to the law of Moses. But he's held to the teaching of Paul and the truth of Jesus being Lord and Savior. The Jews, James was such a Jewish follower, he was called James the Just by the Jews. And they thought, when they saw him living according to the law of Moses, they thought... He can't be a Christian. Even though he's the leader of the church, we can get him to deny that Jesus is the risen son of God. And so they even put him in situations where before many, many people, they thought they would get him to say what they wanted him to say, and he would proclaim Jesus as the risen Savior, and which would cause the church to grow even more. So they took advantage of the time between the, 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 the Roman governors, the new Roman governor being appointed since the last one died, and they killed him in the open. And all, the historical records show that even though it was four years later that Jerusalem was sacked in 70 AD, it went back to one of the main events, one of the main reasons was the killing of James. These are all things within Paul's point of view. These are all things in Paul's peripheral vision. He can see this far down the road how things are going and heading. I'm not saying that he knew James was going to be killed. I'm not saying that he knew that Rome was going to be burned when he wrote this letter. But he could see that the way that the world was going, this is not going to get better. This is going to get worse and worse. So where he talks about redeeming the time because the days are evil, he's saying very simply this. There's never been a time, there's never been a day where we should live as children of light more so than now because of the things that are going on in the world around us. Can we not say the same thing? Should we not be as aware of our day and the things that are taking place in our world as Paul was in his? I believe we should. Knowing that we're even 2,000 years closer to the end than Paul was, I think we need to keep our eyes open to that which is to come. So he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Look at how much controversy there is in the modern day church. You know what the controversy comes down to? What is the will of God? Is it the will of God for everybody to be healed? Is it the will of God to fill 
Everybody with the Holy Ghost. This is the will of God for everybody to speak in tongues. This is the will of God for tragedy to take place. Disagreements, denominations have all been created because of differences in beliefs on what the will of God is. Paul says, seeing the days that you live in, don't be unwise. Don't walk as a fool in this this earth. Don't get trapped and, and caught up in sexual sins, which is the number one trap that the devil has set for you. But understand what the will of the Lord is. What is the will of God? The will of God is for you to walk in love, to walk in forgiveness, and walk in the light. That's the will of God. And that's the only thing that satisfies God. You remember over in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He says, I'm begging you by the mercies of God. I'm not commanding it because I'm an apostle. I'm begging you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable or satisfying unto God, which is your reasonable service. Other translations say spiritual worship. What's he telling us? He's telling us the way that God is satisfied with our lives is when we walk in love and forgiveness. When we are the light of of the world that Jesus said he was. That's what satisfies God. So many times we get caught up trying to do things to serve God. Do things to please God. What pleases God is for us to walk in the light. Walking in the light is walking in fellowship. You know where Paul talks about the, the fruit of the spirit versus the works of the flesh. There are a lot of the works of the flesh that you can do. A lot of good works that you can do out of fellowship with God. You can pray when you're out of fellowship with God. Bible tells us to give offerings. You can give offerings when you're out of fellowship with God. Bible tells us to love our neighbor. You can love your neighbor when you're out of fellowship with God. Bible says that you can do all the things that are right and appropriate, but you can do them out of fellowship with God in the darkness rather than in the light, and they don't produce anything in the world. Nothing beneficial anyway. It's too late in the game for that, folks. That's what Paul is saying. He said it 2,000 years ago. It's too late in the game for that. Recognizing the evil days that we live in, walk circumspectly. Walk with accuracy in the word of God. Walk in love. Walk in forgiveness. And for goodness sakes, walk in the light. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to live as the light of God in this world. Lord, we thank you so much that you've made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. You've redeemed us. We're not the old men that we used to be. We don't possess the old nature that we used to possess as unsaved. But instead, we possess the light of God within us, the life of God, the goodness of God. Father, you've made us new people. You haven't just given us a new way of life. You've made us new creatures. Father, forgive us to the degree that we fellowshiped with the world. Forgive us for having been asleep in whatever ways we may have. But Lord, we see that the days 
are shortened. And the time has come when the end of all things is at hand. We see how important it is, Father, to walk as children of light. So we commit to you, Father, that we'll awaken. We'll awaken to righteousness. We'll awaken to your will, knowing your will in the earth for us. Knowing how important it is to reach others with the good news of Jesus. That we live a life separated from this earth. We are in the world, but we're not of it. Let our lives so shine before men that they see a difference in us. We know that's the life that satisfies you, Father. What a privilege it is to know that we are satisfying unto you. That you are satisfied with us as we walk in love and forgiveness. Lord, help us to reach our world. Help us to reach those around us. As we walk circumspectly, let us be more aware of others than we are ourselves. We pray that you would cause these things to be so in us by the work of the Holy Ghost because we yield ourselves to you, Lord. Thank you for making it so. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. <laughs> Folks, this Christmas season for us shouldn't be just about shopping. This Christmas season is the one or, well, maybe two times a year, one or two times a year, where people get their eyes on the fact that there's something bigger than themselves. Let's look for opportunities to let them know who Jesus is. Let's look for opportunities to tell them, yeah, Jesus was a baby born in a manger, but he's not still there. He's seated at the right hand of the Father because he paid the price for your sins and mine. Let's look for opportunities. And take them when we see them. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come on back and be with us again tonight if you can.